Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode number 61. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Nice place to be this time of year. Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell. We are brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. On this week's edition of the program, a couple of interesting conversations, first with writer Josh Karp, and then with longtime actor, director, and teacher Barry Pearl. Now let's start uh, this time around with Josh Karp, who has uh, written a number of terrific works, recently had a great piece in Esquire on legendary film director, producer Bob Rafelson, also responsible for a great documentary about uh, Orson Welles, and the effort to finish up uh, his what turned out to be his final film, The Other Side of the Wind, that documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, and wrote a terrific book that became the inspiration for the Netflix movie about uh, the early days of National Lampoon, primarily uh, the work of Doug Kenny. Here's our conversation with wonderful writer Josh Karp. I don't know where to begin because you have written about uh, three of the most fascinating people in, in the history of the entertainment business. But let's start with the most recent, a terrific piece you had recently in Esquire on Bob Rafelson. And for anybody who doesn't know who Bob Rafelson is or what he's meant in the world of entertainment, how would you briefly describe him? Well, I think, you know, the, the two most identifiable things that, that Bob, you know, the people would know Bob for is one, he created the monkeys and then in totally the opposite direction, he directed the film Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson, which is as unlike the monkeys, right, as you're ever going to get. Um, but he was really a guy who, who revolutionized, um, you know, when you hear about the, the term New Hollywood. Um, Bob and his business partners were the guys who transitioned, out of the, transitioned Hollywood out of the studio system into the early 70s when, you know, people like uh, Coppola and... Um, uh, Peter Bogdanovich and other people like that were making films because they were really smart and knew how to make movies on low budgets, but with talented people. So, like, they funded Easy Rider, which I think they spent, like, about $400,000 on, and it made $70 million at the box office. Um, they did the same with Last Picture Show, and they did the same with Five Pieces. So they really are kind of the the turning point where, you know, that old studio system with musicals and you know, Westerns and all that, and, and kind of modern filmmaking begins. And he reached out to you to confirm the fact, or partially confirm the fact that he wasn't actually dead. <laughs> he was, when I, you know, they had, uh, Esquire had kind of chased down Bob. They wanted to do a profile of him, and Bob is, is a great guy, but he's like a real, he's, you know, he's like a character from, you know, one of his own movies. He's just kind of grouchy, you know, tough customer and uh and he didn't want you know he's like oh i don't want to do it i don't want to do it and then he sends me an email one day and it's uh from a magazine in england i think it um it sight and sound which is a big film industry magazine and it's a issue all about scorsese and it talks about all the other directors of his era and some of them you know it says aren't really you know working anymore some of them still make films and then it said these guys are gone and it's like dennis hopper robert altman blah, 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 and Bob Rafelson. And he just sent me an email forwarding that, and it said, see, even the pros think I'm dead. <laughs> and so that was kind of, and that's kind of like, that's a very kind of a summation of Bob's character. He got a huge kick out of the fact that they thought he was dead. Um, and so it kind of went from there. Well, and from your piece and, and from what I've, I've read about him and what I saw in the uh, documentary in The Monkeys a few years ago, I feel like maybe the term larger than life could have been coined for him. Uh, yeah, that, that's an understatement. It was uh, <laughs> writing the article was difficult because he's he's first of all he is larger than life. I mean, he's eighty six years old, and he is like the last dude you'd want to get in a fight with, um, you know. And, and and he's not you know he's a guy with two steel shoulders, all this you know surgery that's been done. But he's like nobody you want to mess with. He's like a big kind of powerful character, both you know personally and physically. And um, he told these stories that were just unbelievable. And, and he, at you know, one point, he, we, we emailed back and forth quite a bit, both before and after the interview. Um, I spent like three or four days with him in, at his house in Aspen and uh, interviewing him. But before and after that, he'd send me these great emails. 
And one of them said, you know, I've been imprisoned on three or four continents, you know, and they said, who count, but who counts? And he said, you know, including, you know, one time I was hung upside down uh, from a jail cell, from the ceiling of a jail in Columbia with, um, and was being tortured. He said, but, you know, the worst thing was when they stopped electrocuting me, he said the radio would go back on. It was always playing Perry Como. Like, that is like a classic Bob story. And he had, and then he would, and he would end it with, he'd say, and then there was the time in Mombasa. And then end the email. It was he. He has such a great sense of his own myths and legend, you know. So he would, you know, it, it just went on and on, and you know, and you know, fights with this person and that person, and you know, it just a fantastic guy. And yes, so much larger than life that it was not easy to fit all of him. And it sounds like he doesn't need or want anything from Hollywood, but he would like it if people would maybe take a second look at a film of his that didn't get great reviews, didn't do well at the box office when it first came out, Mountains of the Moon. Yeah, that was, you know, the whole reason Bob agreed to do this um, was that he's, you know, his favorite movie of his that he ever made is Mountains of the Moon, which came out in 1990, and it's about, um, based on the true story of uh, two explorers who are searching for the source of the Nile. And it's this great adventure in Africa, um, and uh, and and that I think I think he had the most fun making it, and I think it was a real departure from his other films because all of his other films were kind of these quirky American movies, you know, like uh, he made The King of Marvin Gardens, which was set in you know pre-casino Atlantic City. He made just these quirky, weird movies about weird places, and uh, and so I think for him it was just this real departure, and he was so far from Hollywood, and so far from the studios, and he loved you know you know, situations where someone might shoot at him or where you know, he might get stampeded <laughs> by elephants. So this was like perfect. He was in Africa, you know, and everything was just kind of, he was, making, he was just doing it as he went along and he, he had a blast. And so he did the article because he wanted to promote, you know, Mountains of the Moon and get it back out, back out in the world. We're talking with Josh Karp here on Downtown. Uh, I'm so obsessed, maybe, uh, maybe not be too strong a word, with Doug Kenny and the early days of National Lampoon and everything that he did, I, I went back when we got you lined up. I went back and read your wonderful book, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, for a second time. Uh, watched the Netflix movie that was based on it last year, and then watched the documentary again on uh, on National Lampoon. I know why I'm fascinated with Doug Kenny's story. What drew you to him? You know, it, it was such a it, it was really a funny thing. I, I uh, kind of the short version of the long story is I, I went to board. I'm from Chicago, but I went to a boarding school outside of Boston. And, uh, and I immediately was serving detention on Saturday morning in the library while I was there. <laughs> and, um, I was, and I never did my homework while serving the homework detention. And there was an Esquire issue of Esquire, I think from 1981 at the time, um, with Doug Kenny on the cover and he had died. And I knew, you know, I grew up on all that National Lampoon stuff. Um, you know, I, mean, I think I was 12 when Animal House came out. I was, you know, 14 when Caddyshack came out. So that was, you know, really formative stuff for people my age. And I knew, I only knew actually at the time that this was Stork from Animal House. <laughs> and then I read this article kind of about his life and death. And it was a weird article. Um, you know, he had died very mysteriously. He fell off a cliff in Hawaii um, at the age of 33. And he was just this great, enigmatic genius. And everybody loved him, but nobody knew him. Um, and and he was such a, and, and also just such an immense talent. I mean, you look at any of the things he did. I'm, I'm not sure if he's, if he's not there, I don't think National Lampoon works. If he's not there, I don't think Animal House ever gets made. Um, if he's not there, I don't think Caddyshack is any good. He is kind of, the voice he like is the one who gets got everything about their generation and about humor and how to make you know anything funny so i was always interested in that and then i just got this idea one time i was like god you know i really i want to writing magazine articles all the time and i really want to do something more in depth and i always kind of had the idea that i wanted to write something about Doug kenny and then you know realized that there was no nothing half that article and you know i think it was 25 years later when i went to work on it um so i you know i started working on it and it was also about kind of his rise and fall 
coincided with the rise and fall of National Lampoon as, you know, the great American humor magazine. Um, so it was a great, I mean, I was very lucky to get the story because there are these two remarkable stories that kind of mirrored each other. Um, so yeah, so that, that was kind of it. I mean, but it really started, you know, while serving detention, which I guess is completely appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely. Given, well, given uh, the subject matter. Such a fascinating relationship too with Henry Beard, two guys who could not have been more different, but that combination proved so incredibly potent and successful. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, his, yeah, his, his best, you know, buddy or his, uh, his, I guess like almost like, uh, you know, work spouse was this guy who had gone to Harvard with Henry Beard, who was like a, you know, Doug was a Midwestern Catholic kid who from Cleveland, you know, who grew up in a middle-class family. And Henry was from, you know, a family, I think that one of his grandfathers or great grandfathers had run against, you know, Ulysses Grant for president or something. I mean, he was real old money, East coast, you know, New York city lost, you know, who generations of his family had gone to Harvard. And Doug was this wild, you know, um, brilliant guy on one end who was kind of undependable, but also just so remarkably talented. And Henry was this really steady, really mature um, guy who was great at writing like straight on parodies of things. You know, he was just brilliant. Like he, I I remember he wrote like uh, a female detective fiction. I mean, this is going to sound dated now, but in 1973, and it was like, it's like a Sam Spade novel or something. And I think it was called my gun is cute. And it was supposed to be a woman, you know, writing, writing uh, that type of thing. And it was just like he did. He totally nailed exactly what, you know, some male would think a woman would write, you know, mystery in that time. And he was they were also both such smart guys. I mean, I think that's the thing that people don't realize about humor when you watch, you know, somebody like Stephen Colbert or um, Conan O'Brien or, you know, anybody who's, you know, really you know, doing good humor and there are lots of other people is that, you know, first and foremost, they're smart. It's not that they're funny first and foremost, they're smart. And because if they're not smart, their humor, you know, usually stinks. And these guys are really smart guys who happen to be incredibly funny. And they, you know, were perfectly matched. Like Henry had it together and Doug was a genius. So they, while it lasted, (laughs) had an incredible partnership. And he's such a sympathetic character because, uh, despite his failings that he was fairly open about, uh, he seemed to be quite uh, open to people and quite a good colleague to be around. People couldn't help but love him and, and always tinged with sadness, not only because of his early death, but he was never able to get out of the shadow of his brother, Dan, who also died young. Right. I, well, I think that was, you know, you know, you, it, you, know, you, if you, you know, you read enough biographies and, see, you know, kind of follow this stuff enough and you kind of see, you know, how these things that, you know, you don't identify in the moment is going to be a defining, you know, aspect of somebody's life. I think for Doug, that was, you know, his brother dying, um, you know, in his late twenties and Doug was, you know, I think mid twenties and Doug was in college, you know, that was such a defining moment for him. And I think Doug was this brilliant person who was a middle child who never fit in with his family. Um, you know, and his brother was like a real normal American kid. Um, and the family always thought very highly of him. And I think, you know, Doug's whole life, no matter what he did, he never felt like he measured up to his brother, who was just, you know, kind of like a normal, you know, American guy. Because mm. Doug was like this misfit always. Um, that said, he was he mastered the art of blending in with anybody. And everybody loved him. After the book, was done. I knew that I'd start getting calls and emails from people um, like the ones I wound up getting, which would be, you know, some guy goes like, who would say, Oh, you know, I, I, you know, I was hitchhiking and Doug picked me up from Milwaukee. You know, he's he's like, and we drove all the way to Los Angeles together that I lived with him for three months. I mean, (laughs) I I got so many, I, I can't even count how many people contacted me. And literally there were stories like, they're like, Oh yeah, you know, I was in a bar. And we spent, you know, a week together in Montana. <laughs> you know, you just be like, what? So he, he was the kind of person who, you know, would befriend anybody and not in a stupid way. You know, I mean, he was, he never, once he got rich and famous, he never stopped liking people, which I think is, um, 
you know, never thought he was above people and never thought that what he did was more important than anybody else. Um, so he's a, he's a very sweet guy. I think that was one of the things that was great is he could write really kind of biting comedy, but there was always this kind of affection beneath it that came through. Um, you know, and, and he, I think that was one of the things that made what he did work. We're talking with Josh Karp here on Downtown. Uh, you wrote Orson Welles' last movie. You co-produced the documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, all about the making uh, well, the making and the odyssey that culminated finally in the release last fall of The Other Side of the Wind. Do you think Orson Welles would be happy with that finished product? <laughs> it depends on... I, there are a lot of ways to look at that. I'm sure, you know, he would be... My guess is he'd be publicly very gracious about it and very happy that it, you know, uh, that it happened. And probably, you know, somewhere in heaven right now, he's laughing at the irony of all of it, <laughs> um, you know, and that, that he that he somehow got to come back when he was 100 years old and dead for, you know, 35 years. Um, but I, I'm sure behind closed doors, he would have, you know, they, they did a brilliant job finishing the film. I can't even imagine, like Bob Morowski, who edited it you know, having to edit an Orson Welles film that Orson Welles had not finished is like about as daunting as it gets. And Bob did an an incredible job. I mean, he really, I think, is kind of the hero of the movie in that way. But I'm sure, you know, editing aside, I'm sure Orson would have said, oh, this this is wrong. He would have, you know, he, he was a real, like, you know, not surprisingly, someone who loved to stomp around and you know, complain about this and complain about that, and, you know, and talk about how he could have done this, how he would have done that, you know. So I'm sure you'd get both sides from him. He was, what, one thing I learned about him was he was like everything, every possible <laughs> emotion, you know, he could feel about every single thing that happened. So he could be, you know, overjoyed in front of one person, furious in front of another, you know, all about the same thing. The legend of Other Side of the Wind just continued to grow as time went on. Do you think there was a piece of Orson Welles that wanted it to remain unfinished to continue that legend. Well, I think there was a piece of him, you know, um, I mean, I think, you know, he, he, I mean, and Doug Kenny too, I mean, I've been really lucky. I got to write about two of the smartest guys, smartest, most talented guys you'll ever, you know, I could ever write about. And yet you realize that these people are human and that they have these, massive Achilles heels and that they can even see their own faults and can't do anything about them. And that was kind of the case with Orson. I think, you know, he, on the one hand, there were people would say, they go, you know, yeah, sure. Of course he wanted to finish it. It was suicide not to finish it for his career. But at the same time, he really liked getting up every day and just having a bunch of people do whatever he said, making a movie. And so he, in a way, it was like kind of subconsciously a way of keeping himself alive. You know, it was almost right. like, you know, if I just keep making the movie, you know, I never die. Um, so I know he wanted to finish it, but there was so much, you know, I think there was also this piece that he just loved making movies and this was his thing. So he could kind of do what he wanted. So he just kept kept making it and making it and improving it and changing it. And you know, people died, not actually from making the movie, but people just got old and passed away. You know, <laughs> during the of making the film, which I always, you know, the Chief O'Hara from uh, uh, Batman, uh, Stafford right. Rep. Right. Um, he, you know, he, he died in the middle of the making of the film. I mean, it was just so weird. And, and that was also great because all these, weird famous people show up like it took me i think i was a year and a half into it and all of a sudden i'm like oh my god that's chief o'hara <laughs> you know? like, and that was kind of a fun part of the story is find it trying to find all these you know just out of nowhere people orson put in the movie and also he recast people as you know so he'd just right. say after three years okay that guy was terrible in that part i'm gonna put this person in so you you know you kind of had to find all these people it's like a great you know it's like being a detective on a great hunt. So, Well, love the book and, and love the movie as well. Love all your work, Josh. This is great. I've had a wonderful time talking with you today. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, Hope you'll you. come back again and we can chat some more. Anytime. I would love to. Thank you for having me on the show. Josh Carp talking with us here on Downtown the Podcast. When we return...
actor Barry Pearl. You know him from Greece, but much more than that, he'll talk Don Rickles, his days on stage, and much more after this quick word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Why, this car is automatic, it's systematic, it's hydromatic. Why, it's greased lightning. Greased lightning. Plus, downtown, the podcast, our next guest, perhaps best known for his role as Duty, one of the T-Birds. In the movie production of Greece, most successful movie musical in history. Barry Pearl's done a lot more than that, though, starting with a Broadway appearance in the original production of Bye Bye Birdie. We had a great conversation with him, looking back on some of the many highlights of his career as an actor, director, and teacher. 1961, we were just playing some of the music a few minutes ago from Bye Bye Birdie. You made your Broadway debut as Randolph McAfee with that tremendous cast and that award-winning show. That's right, I did. I had uh, been very active in community theater back in my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as a a tyke. And um, I had done a production of Dark at the Top of the Stairs at the Fulton Opera House, now the Fulton Theater, one of the oldest uh, theaters in the country. The Booths had even performed on that stage, both Edwin (laughs) and John Wilkes, I believe. And um, uh, I had done this production. I was all of nine years old. And uh, there was a, uh, an aspiring playwright from New York by the name of Chuck Miller, Charles E. Miller, who, um, you know, as an aspiring playwright, you oftentimes have to take uh, odd jobs to pay the rent, if you will. So he had taken this job running lights for this production. And um, he uh, took a liking to me and my mom and said, one of these days, told my mom, one of these days I'm going to get your son on Broadway. Well, you know, that's that's all well and good. Well, two years later, 61, we get a phone call from him in, in, in August of 61. He uh, was the friend of the secretary of the man who produced Bye Bye Birdie, Edward Padula. And Edward's uh, secretary, Bob Fagan, and Chuck were buddies. And Bob had confided to Chuck that they were looking to replace Johnny Borden, who was the original Randolph McAfee. Right. He was going off to do another Broadway show with Molly Pecan called uh, Milk and Honey. And they were looking for a replacement. They'd looked all over the city for, for a kid. And Chuck said, hey, I might have a kid for you. Called my mom. Next thing you know, I'm on a train into New York. Uh, Chuck takes me to the Lambs Club, which I don't think is in existence anymore. It's kind of like a Friars Club-esque sort of uh, a clan, if you will, of, of theater folks. And he taught me the song, There's No Business Like Show Business. <laughs> and the following day, I'm at the Schubert Theater backstage where the, the production was being done. And uh, I go in and I sing for Marge and Gower Champion. Oh, my gosh. Gower was directing and, uh, and some of the other mucky mucks there. And the next thing you know, they're asking me if I had, had another song, and I didn't, so they had me sing Happy Birthday. And uh, that, uh, I guess it was that very day or the very next day. Uh, that was a Wednesday, I think, or Tuesday. And uh, I got the gig and went into rehearsal the next day, which was a Wednesday. And they had planned to have me go on uh, on that following Monday. In the meantime, my mother had gone back to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, by train to gather up our things. And um, I wound up being put on that Saturday. I was ready to go. Mom, may she rest in peace, didn't get to see my Broadway debut. But uh, she certainly did when she got back. And that sort of got the ball rolling. And from there... Mom uh, had me um, uh, enrolled in professional children's school, which is still in existence, going very strong there in, in, in Manhattan. And it was a school that was, des- unlike performing arts, uh, this school catered to kids who were in show business or who had parents who were in show business and who traveled with their parents. So you work through correspondence. Kind of tough because I've never done that kind of thing before. But I got through it and came back and auditioned for Oliver, the, the, the musical Oliver, which was pre-Broadway, 
Um, but I didn't get in on the first call. I actually had a broken arm, so uh, they didn't they didn't hire me. But a couple of months later, while they were still out on the road, they let two kids go, and I auditioned again and got the gig on the same day that I was to sign a contract to go out on tour with Camelot. It starred uh, um, uh, Arthur Treacher and um, oh, who else? Uh, uh, um, not Louis Jordan, uh, Louis Hayward. Oh, Arthur wow. Treacher. Forget who the Lancelot, maybe it was Lancelot, uh, he might have been playing Arthur, I think, Lewis Hayden. In any event, they were going out on tour, but Oliver was coming in. So I auditioned for Oliver, and uh, the, the role in Camelot was young Tom, who comes in at the very end of the play. So I wouldn't have had a lot to do until the end of the play. Here in Oliver, I you know, was on stage uh, constantly. So we took the, uh, the pre-Broadway of Oliver and came in and opened on Broadway d- during a paper, a newspaper strike, actually. It was in 63, if I'm not mistaken. And then, you know, just from there, uh, other jobs presented themselves, films, television, and commercials. And, and I, uh, I, I stayed in New York until, well, 69, I graduated from professional children's school and went off to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and continued my studies in drama and then graduated from there. And that's when the Greece phenomenon posed its uh, posed itself but <laughs> let me stop talking and let you ask, ask another quick question before i completely take over this case. well i know the stories are great now before we get to greece though i wanted to ask you about your time as a regular working with the great don rickles on cpo sharky sure sure well in the spring of 76 uh and this was after i had done the national tour the last 10 months of the first national tour of greece i was back in uh, in new york and um, I was doing a play downtown, making pretty decent money because I was actually initially understudying seven guys. It was a review. And um, uh, anytime I'd go on for like three of them, I'd get their salary plus mine. So I was making good money. And I'd always contended that you shouldn't go out to California unless you had something to bring you out there. And I'm not just talking about a car. <laughs> but, um, you know, but that, that, that was what I had in the back of my head. So. I'd auditioned for this pilot, this television pilot that was being shot in California called Best Friends that was created by uh, Alan Sachs, who gave us Welcome Back Cotter, along with Gabe Kaplan. And uh, he pr- produced this, uh, had, it was written by, I think it was Stanley Ralph Ross, um, a, a, a pilot that was kind of CBS's answer to Happy Days, though it took place in, in modern day, about a gang, of, a, a nice gang of kids. And... Um, I'd auditioned for this thing for the role of a Jewish gypsy whose real name was Murray, but they called him Gypsy. <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I screen tested for it. It was being directed by Jerry Paris, who directed every episode mm. of The Happy Days, and was also Jerry the Dentist in The Dick Van Dyke Show. Right. And prior to that, he was in the, the, the film Marty. And uh, so Jerry you know, had, had a, an acting career, but now he, he was a director, and, and he was fabulous to work with. But before getting the gig, uh, a week after the pilot, uh, we, we, we shot the uh, screen test. I was told I didn't get it. A week later, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting in my apartment, and I get a phone call. And by the way, I must tell you, within that week after having uh, shot the screen test, the gypsy and Jewish gypsy came into my life in some crazy ways through that week. It was almost like the universe was telling me something. Uh, even down to the fact that the guy that sold the souvenir programs for the show that I was doing down at Village Gate was a Jewish gypsy as well. <laughs> Just all these woo-woo kind of things that were going on. So I, you know, there was a gypsy on the bus at one point when I was traveling home from uh, wherever it was, and it just just kept coming into my life. So, and by the way, it's not politically correct to even use that word anymore, which is kind of sad. <laughs> but in any of gypsy, I mean, in, in any event... <laughs> So the week rolls around. I didn't get the gig. A week later, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I get a telephone call from my agent saying they're firing the guy that they hired, and they want you to get onto the next plane and get out to California. I'm going to put you on hold, and we're going to do a three-way with the, the casting folks there. So while they had me on hold, uh, there was a radio playing you know, that they had plugged into, and it was playing the song, I'm a Gypsy Rover. Wow. Isn't that weird? That's a message so, right there. It, truly. And so... Uh, I called my friend Sheldon Epps, and uh, who's who recently, for the last I think uh, fifteen or so years, was the artistic director of the the Pasadena Playhouse. He and I had gone to Carnegie together. I said, "Get over here." I knew he had a car. He was living in Teaneck. I said, "Get over here. Take me out to LaGuardia Airport." I think it was LaGuardia I left from. Went out, did the pilot, 
uh, and met a lot of folks out there, casting folks, who said, you know, you should come out here because you'll work. And even Jerry Paris himself said, you know, you'd work out here. You, you, you need to move out. So we found out that the pilot did sell, but Jerry said, why don't you come out here? You'll live with my family and me, and we'll get you on your feet. Well, I decided to go against my better judgment, and I packed up lock, stock, and barrel, barrel and I sublet my apartment. And I moved out to California on spec up to Pacific Palisades, gorgeous Pacific Palisades. So the bar was set real high to begin with. <laughs> and a week and a half later, after I'd moved out, I got my first audition. And that audition was for a replacement in CPO Sharky because I'd already shot the pilot. And I got the gig. So the first gig mm. out of the gate, which was a series. Now, it gets a little depressing after this. So here I'm on top of the world. I move out, move into the into the valley, my own apartment. And um, we start to shoot. It was like his June or July of 76. And everything was going fine. But the writers weren't writing for the guys. And I, became, I started becoming despondent. I, I just felt like I was being wasted. And the role that they had hired me for was this Italian recruit. Mignoni was my name. Mignoni actually happened to be the last name of Don's body, bodyguard. Part <laughs> of that, the guy that they let go or who, who didn't, who didn't uh, stay on, uh, Jeffrey Kramer, who's today he's a big uh, producer, TV producer, he didn't want to do it, or they let him go. Something happened there. He claims that uh, that he just didn't want to sign a seven-year contract to play this role. He was also an Italian character by the name of Pellegrini. So they hired me to kind of be the Latin lover, of us, you know, <laughs> kind of like the Fonzie-esque kind of guy. So the first episode, um, they'd also hired a fellow to be uh, just on one episode, Richard, uh, um, uh, Richard Beauchamp, terrific uh, actor, uh, a Latin guy, Puerto Rican guy. And he became sort of that character, and he spoke Spanish, and he was wonderful. So he wound up becoming a regular, and, and what they had in store for me, it just didn't fly. And, and every time Don would come down the row and he'd berate the Polish guy and the Jewish guy and the black guy and the Puerto Rican guy, he'd come to me. And by that point, there wasn't anything funny to say about the Italian guy. And I remember saying to Don, may he rest in peace, and we, we were good friends after this, um, I said, say something about my Italianness. So he, and he looked at me and he said, "Hey, I got family." <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? He was very tight with Sinatra, I mean, as well you know. And what wound up happening? I got, I got really despondent. I was not happy. On my birthday that year in March, we hadn't been picked up yet. We, we didn't know whether we were being picked up. On my birthday, I get a telephone call from my agent telling me, "Well, the show's been picked up, but they haven't picked you up." So it was a it was a heck of a birthday gift, and I was having a party that night with, where the producer's son was going to be there because he was in the he was also in the show, Tommy Rubin, who I'm dear friends with to this day. And um, I was really depressed. I ran down to Jerry Paris. He was doing a, a, a series called Blansky's Beauties, and I cried. What am I going to do? My career is. He goes, look, Barry, you can never tell. This could be the blessing in disguise. He, can, he said, when I was young, I was in the original Untouchables with Robert Stack. If you remember that series, sure you do. Young. And um, he said, I got written out of that and thought that my career was over. But had that not happened, I wouldn't have gotten the Dick Van Dyke show, which led to my directing career. Because Sheldon Leonard, producer right. of the Dick Van Dyke show, gave him shots on that show and others. And he, But, you know, Richard, at that point in time, as I've said before, the, the light at the end of the tunnel looks like a truck coming at you. You really can't, <laughs> you know, you really can't wrap yourself around it. Well, P.S., had that not happened. Had I not had my contract, you know, not picked up, had I been picked up, CPO Shark, I wouldn't have been able to do Grease. Uh, we're talking with Barry Pearl here on Downtown. Now, I want to get the chronology right. You did the first national tour of Grease. That was before yeah. it was made into a motion picture. That's correct. That's correct. Exactly. And uh, that's a wild story, too, if you have time. I do indeed. Uh, Please. I I was uh, uh, in the summer of 72. Um, you know, we're still going to Carnegie Mellon. And uh, a, a bunch of transfer students from California always would tell me how much I reminded them of their friend Michael Lembeck. Oh, yeah. I was in the same shows. We played the same roles. He's Harvey Lembeck's fun. And Harvey was in uh, Sergeant Bilko, which was the template, if you will, for CPO Sharky. Right. In fact, his, his father, uh, Tommy Rubin's father, Aaron Rubin, produced that. And Aaron was a writer on Bilko. So it's all this uh, amazing kind of incestuous tapestry, if you will. <laughs> and... Uh, so they kept telling me how much I reminded them of Michael. And uh, 
so summer of 72, I, in the summer, I went out to Chicago to work with the Chicago Free Street Theater. And we performed all over Chicago and up and down Illinois, bringing free theater to underprivileged neighborhoods, affluent neighborhoods. It was an amazing experience. And um, one of my fellow castmates, this guy John Lansing, um, he had been cast as an understudy in the first national tour of Greece. And when it came through Pittsburgh in, uh, I guess it was March or April of 73, um, he called me and he said, uh, I'm doing this play. Why don't you come down and see it? He invited me down. I went to see the show. And in the show, there was Michael Lembeck. And he comes out. Now, they all come out at the beginning of the play and all in a row. So all the characters, I couldn't distinguish anybody at that point in time. That, that's where they sing the parody of the alma mater, which is, is really not in the movie. Mm. The alma mater is, but it, it, the parody is not. And in the next scene now, we're at what was the bleacher scene in the movie. We're, we're kind of there, you know, where they set up for the Summer Night song. And Michael comes walking on stage backwards, having just gotten Old Lady Lynch for English again, <laughs> you know, as is mentioned in the movie. And he comes out backwards. He turns around. And when I see him, it's like watching myself, Richard. <laughs> it was it was bizarre. Well, the next day I get on the horn with my agent. I said, you got to get me an audition for this thing, a general. Something got to have replacements, new companies. It was either that weekend or the following. I was on a plane to New York. Uh, it was a weekend because I was, I think I took off of school either that Friday or Monday. And I went in for a general audition in front of Pat Birch, who was the choreographer. Right. And who also choreographed the movie and then directed Grease too. She and I had worked together in uh, your, good, your Good Man Charlie Brown in Boston, 67, 68, the Boston Company. And so she was familiar with my work. So I had this general audition. And about a week later, I get a telephone call from my agent saying, Michael Lembeck has broken his ankle. Mm. The end of the first act, they're doing We Go Together, because that's where it's placed in the, in the play. Of course, it's in the movie, it's at the end. And he jumps off this, uh, this uh, bench and fractures his ankle and they want me to come right away up to toronto uh to understudy the understudy who they put who they put on you know but they're now with him on there they're they're not covered for the other roles kanicki and roger and some of the other roles roger wasn't in the movie it was a putsy in the movie and um so i couldn't because i had two weeks of school to finish they said all right you finish your two weeks and then you'll we'll bring you up to detroit because that's where we'll be by that point all right fine so I finished school, and, um, you know, what just occurred to me is that, that doing that pilot of Best Friends, I gave myself an avulsion fracture of my ankle in the middle of the week. <laughs> came out, and I was a hero, and, and in the middle of the week, they're doing a, we're doing a run-through for the, the, the suits, if you will, and the, and the writers and produce everybody. And I jump off of this big cable spool that we were using as a, a table and onto a spray paint can, because my character used spray paint can to spray paint things. And I, my, I, I overturned my ankle on a spray paint can, but still went to the hospital. They wrapped me up in, in an Unaboot, which is ace, of, ace, uh, ace wrap with plaster of Paris, and I was able to do the pilot. So there's like broken ankles involved here, too. So Lembeck had a broken ankle. I came up to Detroit, and I understudied the understudy for three weeks, and I jammed it. Now, in that production, you had Mary Lou Hunter, Henner playing the role of Marty. You had... Uh, Travolta playing duty. That's right. <laughs> you had Jerry Zachs, who's a big Broadway director now, you know. Uh, he was playing Kanicki, um, and uh, Jeff Conaway, may he rest in peace, was playing Zuko, and he was an amazing Zuko, actually the definitive Zuko. In fact, when we were kids, he was kind of my Zuko growing up. He was the bad boy growing up, and, you know, we, were, we, we, were, we lived in New York together. Went to different schools, but, you know, he was that kid that I kind of always am. He was like that that bad, the bad kid that you kind of wanted to be like, but, you know, you didn't want to be real close to. And, um, but he was playing Zuko. He was fabulous. So I go to Jerry Zaks pretty much three weeks in, and I said, listen, Jerry, I, you know, I, I, I've been working real hard on this. If you feign illness, then Tommy, the understudy, will go from doing Sonny into playing Kanicki, and then I'll get a chance to do the show. Could, could, you, <laughs> could you do that for me? He said, well, if stage management says it's okay, you know, well, I knew that wasn't going to happen. Well, I had to play it out. Comes back to me later and says, you know, the production stage manager says, no, we can't do that. Yeah. All right. So I kind of put my eggs in the basket of maybe down the line sometime. So that Saturday, May 19th of 1973, I get a phone call in the, in the morning in my hotel room from Hal Halverson, the stage manager, saying, Jerry Zachs is sick. 
you're going on is sunny. So now I'm thinking, Richard, well, you know, down the line, I thought maybe it was all set up to have that happen. Anyhow, they just don't, didn't want me to be part of that ruse, you know. So I went on. I stepped on stage to Fisher Theater May 19th of 1973 in the role of Sonny in the first national tour. Four years to the day later, May 19th of 1977, I got the film. So another one of those woo-woo experiences, if you will. Well, and it, so, it certainly explains, too, why uh, you guys and the T-Birds had such great chemistry in the film, because so many of you do. knew each other. That's right. Well, Michael Lem I mean, Michael Tucci, who played Sonny, was one of our understudies the last couple of months in the national tour. Um, uh, uh, Jamie Donnelly had played Jan and some other roles. She was in the original. Right. And Jeff Conaway, of course, had played Kaniki. And Johnny played uh, Duty. You know, and Duty, by the way, the character of Duty in the play is the character of Putsy in the movie. Right. He's, an, he's the underling. Sonny, I'm actually doing Sonny in the film, although I'm called Duty. And Michael Tucci is playing Sonny. He's really doing Roger. They just can't. They like the name Putsy. Uh, who knows? It was strange, but, you know, it, it was what it was. But anyhow, after those, those uh, three weeks in Detroit, I was done because Michael came back. And that whole summer then... I moved back to New York, and it wasn't until the end of the summer that they called me to replace Michael. Michael they'd come out here to California, and Michael had had it by that point, and he wanted to stay home. So they brought me in, and I did the last 10 months. It was eight in Chicago and then two in Toronto. And then, and then moving out here to California, they're doing the film, and we were told that they weren't going to consider anybody who had done the play at all. Uh, but then I got a, a, an audition from my agent, from Joel Thurm, the casting director, and had me come in. And, you know, they had me reading Duty. I'm not Duty, but all right, I'll read what they got, not knowing that it had been all changed up. And uh, that was kind of a cool thing, too, um, that audition. We, I think we had, like, two callbacks. We went for the initial call, and there was a dance call, and then a final call. And um, are you familiar with the play at all? I, I am, actually. I, I uh, direct high school theater. I've directed it, uh, I think, three times over the years. Oh, so you know. So it, at the end of the, uh, or the beginning of the, the, the second act, when they're at the gym, the dance, you know, we do the hand job, right. the whole scene. Well, the end of that first scene in the second act, you have that transition between the end of the, the end of that first scene into the Burger Palace, which was down mm. you know, in the movie's Frosty Palace. So at the end of that scene, you have everybody dispersing. Now, Azuko uh, uh, and Cha-Cha, and Cha-Cha, by the way, was in the, in the film, you probably did it this way too, was played by a hot Latina. Well, in the play, the original play, it was uh, um, Chacha was a rather obese, unattractive girl. That was the funny part. Mm. That Kaniki, who's bragged about, you know, finding a hot date from cross town, brings this this girl who who is called a gorilla, and and we, we and we shout out that she looks like a school bus because she's dressed in this <laughs> awful yellow uh, dress with these Dolly Madison curls. I mean, she just was awful. But that was the joke. So at the end of that scene, during transition, now Sunny in the play doesn't dance in the dance because Jim Borelli, who originated the role, wasn't really a dancer. So they have him getting drunk during the dance. And he collapses on the bench stage left while everybody else is, is dancing the dance and Zuko and Cha-Cha win and they all end in that freeze. And then this in this transition, uh, while everybody's moving furniture and such and, and sets, uh, Sonny climbs up the steps in a stupor and he encounters Cha-Cha, who is now all alone, Having been given the, the I think the rec the, uh, the the trophy and the coupons for Robert Hall. <laughs> That's and right. Zuko's taken <laughs> the the the, the some record albums or something. There's a trade off there, and they encounter each other, and Sonny stumbles back down the stairs. You know at what has he just seen? And then he runs back up and gets away from her. And then Cha Cha walks down the stairs. In the meantime, Eugene is just finishing is set change and they cross each other and they turn around and they look at each other like they could go home together where everybody else has, but then they don't, they turn and they walk. It's very, it's a lot of pathos. So that whole business with Sonny being drunk and encountering Cha-Cha, I figured that I, I do what I'm going to describe to you. And the very last thing they had us do with the audition for the movie is that they put all the girls on one side of the room, big line of them and all the guys on the other. And one by one, from the head of the line, we had to meet the girl. I mean, they did it individually in the center of the room, and you had to start dancing with her and woo her off the stage, basically. The stage <laughs> is just a flat, flat uh, floor. So I'm thinking, 
myself, I'm going to play it like I did it in the play, Sonny's Drunk. Now, I got, got a styrofoam cup, and I pretended like I had liquor in it. And as I'm getting down the line, I'm seeing that there's, there are two girls left. One is less attractive than the other. And I'm praying that she holds back <laughs> so that I'm able to go out on the floor with her. Well, as the fate would have it, the fates would have it, that's exactly what happened. This is all improv. And I get out there in a bit of a stupor, and I got that cup in my hand. Now, I need my two hands, so I put the cup into the cuff of my jeans, and it stays. <laughs> all right? They laugh. I put my arms around her, and we start slow dancing. And I move my hand down to her butt. Now, she reaches around as we're still in an embrace, and she takes my hand off her butt and puts it on my butt. <laughs> <laughs> Meantime, I've turned around to my butt space in the audience, and I start caressing my butt like I'm thinking it's her butt. And it caused them to howl, took her off the stage, and then the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> That's a great story. Barry Pearl with us here on Downtown. We were watching uh, the clip before the show today of, uh, of Beauty School Dropout. I understand that was not the most comfortable scene for you guys to film. <laughs> no, I had always wanted to be in a production where I flew, you know, like, Flying with Foy, which is which was the state of the art at the time that Kathy Rigby would use. You know when she did Peter Pan and Mary Martin, all those folks had. It was a, a, a special rig that they that they put together. Well, in this, we heard we were going to fly across the end of the beauty school. I was all kinds of excited about it. Well, they put together this jury rigged contraption where we had these. Uh, they took these jeans and they cut them off at the knees. And then they laced up from the kneecap up to the mid-thigh. So it was like a shoe, you know. And uh, it was um, – the inner lining was this lamb's wool. So it was to make it more comfortable. And so they strapped this into those jeans. And then on the sides of those jeans, there were these bolts, if you will, uh, onto which these cables were attached. And that's what lifted you up. Well, all the weight – the reason why they, they had them laced up is so that – the weight would go onto your knees, basically, or just above your patellas. Well, instead, it caught you in the groin, mm. and so, and we were hanging around up there for a long time. <laughs> it wasn't a very comfortable or fulfilling flight, if you will. Barry, why? Why do you think? Here we are, forty-one years later, still talking about Greece. New generations continue to embrace it. Did, did you and the cast members and crew have any sense at the time that, that you were making a film that would become so beloved and so iconic? No one ever does, Richard. The, I've, I've always answered this question. I'd love to have that crystal ball. You, you know, you, you may have an experience of uh, doing great work and it's feeling like, feeling like this could go places. Um, I don't know if I even had, I mean, I certainly had, a, it was a 15-week labor of love for all of us. We had a grand time. Did we think it was going to skyrocket? Absolutely not. In fact, when it did hit the theaters, it wasn't critically acclaimed. You know, right. uh, it became a commercial success, you know, with foreign distribution and all that. But it wasn't, it wasn't until, I think, the 10th year anniversary that we realized, whoa, because generation after generation was being spoken to. You have that universal story of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, and what the girl does to get the boy. I mean, there's always been a bone of contention there where she has to become a slut to get, well, you know, slut then and slut now, I think, are a little different, a little different. And she wasn't really that kind of a slut. You know, she was putting on an air. And then, of course, he becomes the jock. So, what, so there's a trade-off. But I also contend that you have these two gorgeous faces. Travolta and Olivia, the cameras adore, and you just can't keep your eyes off of them, number one. Number two, that music was phenomenal. And then you have the added tunes by John Ferrara, you know, You're the One That I Want, mm. and uh, he, what else? Well, and and uh, Louis St. Louis writing uh, Sandy um, and, and the like. And uh, you, you got Pat Birch's dancing in Randall's direction. And like you say, you see that camaraderie. Not only from from those of us who, who knew each other and worked before, but there was that camaraderie with all of us. It's kind of like the, the, the Rockettes kicking in, in tandem. You know, you see this well-oiled machine and everybody is moving at the same time, if you will, figuratively and literally. And you see you, you see this love and this, this compassion and this camaraderie uh, that manifests and 
that all comes together in a perfect storm. And I believe that and that the music, the story, the universal story, I think all of that makes for uh, that particular perfect storm that allows it to be enjoyed generation after generation. And, of course, this 40th, I think, was a certain pinnacle. Um, I think the next one will probably be 50th, if not the 45th, if, you know, depending on who's around at that point mm-hmm. in time. Well, um, but- and um, I, I think that Grease Live paid a wonderful homage, mm. and that's in great part because of Tommy Kale, who, who directed it. And, uh, and and then Tom Kidd, who did the musical supervision, and Alex Raditsky, who, who shot it. I mean, there was another perfect storm there, and the cast. Uh, it, at, at that time, it was, I think, in my opinion, and that of others, that it was, uh, at that time, the best of those that had been uh, aired up to that point. Now, you had Jesus Christ Superstar recently, which is fabulous. I just watched it recently. And uh, Hairspray was pretty darn good, too. So it's gotten better and better, and in Grease Live, of course, introduced the live audience aspect, which that was a no-brainer. I don't know why they didn't do that from mm-hmm. the beginning with Sound of Music and, and the other ones that they had done, um, but and uh, uh, Peter Pan. Um, so uh, it, it lasts uh, generation after generation because for, for the reasons I just I just described. You know, there was a, there was talk at one point of them remaking it with Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears. And we thought, oh, no, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. <laughs> now you know what they're talking about, which was uh, a blurb that was released by Hollywood Porter and Variety a couple months ago. They're going to do a prequel called oh, Summer Lovin'. Interesting. Which uh, follows that that romance prior to uh, Greece. Well, Barry, listen, so I, I, I wanted to also talk with you. Uh, we're, we're out of time for today, but uh, we'd love to have you come back because I want to talk about your teaching, your work in improv, some of the great stage roles you've played. Uh, you this bet. has been a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. You're welcome. Uh, you're, you're, you're welcome. And when I do come back, I want to talk about Joey Travolta's Inclusion Film Camp, You know where we teach film arts to special needs folks all across the country. So we'll do that next installment, if you wouldn't mind. I have that on my list to bring up. So, yes, we'll have to do this again and definitely talk about that as well. Please. Barry, thank you. And I hope you I, I hope you find that one armed man. <laughs> Every day I'm searching for my wife is fine though. I know that. <laughs> good. Good. Take care, Richard. That's Barry Pearl here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Barry, Josh Carp as well. Great stories. The, the character actors, the guys like Barry Pearl, always seem to have the best stories here on the program. There's no doubt about that. It's wonderful to just sit in and talk with these guys and and hear what they've observed over their long career. Plus, they, they've all worked with everybody in the business, too. And you realize what a really small community it is, whether it's television, film, or the stage. Uh, a lot of them do know each other. And some wonderful stories there. Thanks to Barry Pearl and Josh Cart, and you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance.